Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations will cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. Joining me around the table today is our entire policy team for the very first time. Wow. Travis. Hey, Jeff. Steven. Good to be here. Chelsea. Greetings. And for the first time on Capital Conversations, welcome to our team member, Lauren Conkle. Hey, glad to be here. All right, guys. How was your Christmas? Festive. <laughs> <laughs> All right. At least one of us is in a festive mood still here. It was nice. We, 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 were, we were here in D.C. My father-in-law came down. We did all the D.C. things. Well, actually, that's not true because the government shut down. We were going to go to the National <laughs> Christmas Tree. More on that later. <laughs> and the government was shut down, and so we were not able to go. Isn't the tree wow. outside? Well, the, it's a it's a park. It, I think it's a complicated story. Apparently, okay. a guy climbed the National Christmas Tree, oh. and it was a part of a multi-hour standoff before the police were able to get him to climb down. Okay. Wait, is this- and, for this real? is totally true. No, this is and, real. And then they, and, and I, th- I think what happened was there wasn't enough park personnel to then assess the the damage, <laughs> and so they just shut it down. Two thousand eight, like unplugged it. The lights aren't even. The lights on. were off. The <laughs> lights were. <laughs> no, yeah, you couldn't even go near. I mean, there's nothing to see. The first time uh, the government shut down when I was here in D.C., it was the end of our EFL uh, conference. I guess this was twenty seventeen. No, no, it was eighteen. Oh, at EFL. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. that's right. Last EFL January. 20, last, last January, so exactly a year ago when the government shut down. A uh, little bit of a pattern there. Um, <laughs> because the government shut down right after midnight, the lights around the Capitol Dome shut off as well. Mm. I thought in my uh, naive, not having been here very long, that if the government shut down, they shut the lights off just for dramatic effect. But anyway. <laughs> that's, everybody, just, that's just when they turn off. That's just when they, <laughs> when they turn off. <laughs> um, nice. Stephen, Chelsea, Lauren, Christmas, did you have a good time? Yeah, we were in Chicago, uh, spending with my side of the family. Uh, just really restful um, to spend time with Sonny and the boy. So, um, yeah, just a good time. Good deal. Christmas in Florida, definitely different than the cold. Yeah, not cold DC. at all down not, in Florida. Not cold at all. So Did you we, guys go to the beach? We usually spend the Christmas at the beach uh, in Florida. And so I was home with all my siblings and my parents. It was really, really nice time to get out of the swamp and, and who else be went back down with there palm with you? trees. My fiance. Hey, <laughs> somebody just got engaged. So the two of us went down, had a really nice time introducing him to family dinners of twelve, a little oh bit boy, more than he's awesome. used to. So it was a nice time. And how was everybody's New Year's Eve? And key question here: Did you make it to midnight? Lauren, we'll start with you. Did you make it to midnight? I made it all the way till midnight. All right, no naps. No all the naps. Way. <laughs> I made it to midnight. I was sitting next to my five-year-old daughter Jane, who we could not convince her to go to sleep. She stayed up the whole she time. She stayed up. Wow. Oh yeah. Saw the ball drop because you were in New York City. We were in New York City. We weren't in Times Square, to be yeah, clear. That would we be crazy. Yeah, that would be mm-hmm. lunacy. Um, but yeah, yeah, we made it all the way. Stephen, Chelsea? Yeah, we made it to midnight. Sunny's birthday oh. is January 1st, so it's kind of a routine. Oh, so she's done oh, yeah. yeah, nice. And uh, do a little something, something. Do you eat cake? Man, January mid- 1st, your parents lost out on that uh, tax exemption. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't thinking about that. <laughs> well, no, I mean, uh, well, her parents probably were. Yeah, yeah I guarantee true. her parents were sad. That's yeah. funny. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Chelsea, did you make it to midnight? I did, barely. We did an early dinner at 
my favorite DC restaurant, which is Martin's Tavern in Georgetown. Oh, there you go. That yeah. sounds classy. Um, it's in my neck of the woods. Yes. Some people here don't think that's even in the District of Columbia. <laughs> the Hill Rats. <laughs> the Hill Rats. We so did you- we we did make it to midnight because I I cheated a little bit, and I've done this uh, each New Year's Eve where we're driving back from Houston to Washington. So as soon as you cross over into Georgia, it's all of a sudden Eastern. So your body says it's 11, but it's midnight. So that's been the way that we've done it. Is that cheating? I'm just kidding. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But the day is a little bit shorter, which is nice when you're driving all the way across the country. This episode of Capital Conversations is brought to you by the 2019 Evangelicals for Life Conference. Evangelicals for Life is a conference hosted by the ERLC and North American Mission Board. This two-day event is for you to learn how to be a voice for life and to champion human dignity in your community. Evangelicals for Life takes place here in Washington, D.C., ahead of the annual March for Life on January 17th and 18th, 2019. To learn more, visit evangelicals.life. And if you're able to join us here in D.C., you can use the promo code CAPITALCONVERSATIONS to save 20% on your registration. That's promo code capital conversations, all uppercase, capital with an O, conversations, to save 20% on your registration. Visit evangelicals.life to learn more. Each year, the ERLC policy team publishes a legislative agenda that you can find on our website from 2018, 2017 on and on back. And we're going to discuss the 2019 legislative agenda on today's episode. Uh, But first, I thought it might be helpful since we are here at the start of January with the start of a brand new session. We have the 116th Congress, uh, and this month kicks off the first session of that new Congress. So let's chat a little bit about it. There are a lot of new faces in town, some returning uh, folks. Uh, one senator from Utah coming back. He uh, is the only person to serve as senator from one state, governor of another state. The, the second person to do that, which is Mitt Romney, second to Travis. Do you know this trivia? Uh, no, I can't remember. Sam Houston, Sam Houston ladies and gentlemen. Right. That's right. Governor who, who of Texas. Who also was a president. He was also a president of the Republic of Texas. Uh, <laughs> but enough about Texas. Stephen, coming to you, we we talked during uh, the midterm campaign about the diversity of candidates running for office. And now this is the most diverse Congress in the history of the country. Yeah, much conversation about this new freshman class. You got 10 new senators, 101 new representatives. And of all the conversations that have been had about this freshman class, the diversity issue has come up a lot simply because this is the most diverse freshman class elected to Congress, which is obviously historic. And so a lot of conversation about where we are as a country. Race conversation is a big conversation that's ongoing. So people have been looking at the demographics of this incoming class. And there's a lot to celebrate. You know, you have, uh, I think there's about 42 women elected to Congress between the Senate and the House. First African-American women elected to Congress from a number of states. First Muslim Congresswoman, uh, women, I think it's, it was two yeah, of them. Was first, two, two yeah, first yeah. Muslim uh, elected officials, Native American, uh, Native American uh, Congresswoman. And so there's just a lot of things uh, to note here. And one of the things that we talked about, Jeff, in our conversation, just as I'm thinking broadly about where the state of our political discourse and political realities lie, you know, you can't help but notice that the majority of that diversity mm-hmm. um, is on the Democratic side of the right. aisle. 
And so, you know, when you even look at the photos that are taken of the freshman class, the incoming yeah. class, I mean, it's just very obvious that something is starkly different here. Um, so, uh, amongst the, the 42 women elected to Congress, 38 of those um, were in the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. um, four in the Republican Party, two senators, and two uh, reps in the House. And so, just so it's not even just race, it's gender, uh, a number of things. And so, it, it raises a lot of questions about the future of of our political discourse about the future of uh, just the country and representation right. and it's something that I that I lament to be to be quite honest simply because it just shows that one of our political parties for a number of reasons um, too much to, to talk about in this this one sitting right. but has just failed to commend itself in ways that inspire perhaps individuals to run, but then also just uh, ways that reflect the growing diversity of, of our of our constituency, right, of, mm-hmm. of the population. And so, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but just it's it, it's worth talking about. Yeah. Well, and then there's leadership pipeline questions. There's leadership development questions, you know, mixed up in all that. And I think, you know, in, in fairness, I mean, the, you know, the election sort of was what it was. And I think there has been, you know, there have been some discussions and some soul searching among the GOP about what what has led to this. But I think you're right, Stephen. I mean, the, 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 the future of <laughs> the future of that party depends on its ability to reflect the, to reflect its electorate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On the diversity question, it is interesting that in one state, uh, the state of Arizona, they sent their first females uh, to the Senate and uh, it's actually two. So replacing uh, the late Senator McCain and replacing the retiring uh, Senator Jeff Flake uh, are two women uh, from from opposite parties. Kristen Sinema won that race. She's a Democrat. But then Martha McSally, who was over in the House, who was her opponent, was then appointed uh, because John Kyle stepped down because he was only going to serve to the election, which is interesting uh, that Arizona now has two uh, women representing them in the Senate, which is kind of a little microcosm of split government as a whole. Mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi is now Speaker, so uh, the Democrats are a majority uh, on the House side of the Capitol, but the Republicans uh, not only maintained but uh, increased their majority by a few votes uh, in the Senate. So Mitch McConnell is still the leader in the United States Senate. So we've got split government. What should we expect in the 116th split Congress? Everything to pass. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it, sh- it should move smoothly. Yeah, it's a wonderful age of bipartisanship <laughs> sound. Yeah, Just the way our government was set up. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that you know the truth is there will. I mean, there will be a lot of bills that that move on a bipartisan basis. I mean, most of the bills that passed in the last Congress were bipartisan. A lot of them moved on unanimous consent. You know, were negotiated behind the scenes. These are smaller measures. These are things that that didn't you know, didn't necessarily catch the headlines, but, you know, smaller groups of people or special interests really cared about, or it was a narrow issue that was a pet issue for a particular member. And that kind of stuff is not going to change. I mean, just because you, just because you've had a change in party uh, in one, in one chamber, but, you know, the big issues spent, I mean, we're talking in the middle of a shutdown. We're on our way to this being the longest government shutdown in in American history. Um, And that is partly a function of this divided government that you have, you have a new uh, node of power that has to be reckoned with, and neither Mitch McConnell nor nor President Trump were in the position of having to deal with um, a powerful Democratic Party. 
that can set the agenda, that determines the floor, that determines what bills pass or don't pass in the House of Representatives. And that's going to be something that I think both the Senate and the White House are going to have to figure out how to adjust to. So what what can we expect specifically from uh, the Senate? We've already seen two years, uh, most recently, the past two years with a Republican in the White House and Republicans, a majority in Senate. Should we expect more of the same? Focus on judges? What else? I mean, I think I think there will be a predominant focus on judges in the Senate. Um, I think that you know one of the things about the the change in margin now that there's 53 Republicans instead of 51 is that no single senator has a veto power over uh, over a particular judge, and so that's going to significantly in- so it'll inc- only increase it. It's going to definitely increase yeah. Mitch McConnell's ability to get judges through. The you know, and if you look back over the last couple of years, you know there was a big healthcare debate, there was a big debate about Dreamers, there was a big debate about some of these other big issues that uh, that the country is wrestling with, and all of those things chewed up a lot of floor time. Uh, because the Senate was considering those things, and I think you will see a lot less of those items. I think the you know if you're if you're trying to get Mitch McConnell to bring your issue up on the floor, the thing that you're going to have to prove to him is how is this worth X number of judges, however long it is going to be to take hmm. to get it done. And you know, I mean, I think the you know this being an ele- you know we're moving into a presidential election year, and so everything is going to take on an additional electoral significance, mm-hmm. not just because of President Trump, but because you have, you know, what, like 150 people in Congress on the Democratic side running for president. Sure. And so all of those people are going to be very carefully thinking about, you know, thinking about how they're positioning themselves and so on, which all of that leads to distrust. You know, you bipartisanship, a bipartisan bill can only move if both parties are working together, communicating with each other, and they trust each other, that the, that the terms of the debate are not going to change. And I think on big stuff, I just think it's unlikely to happen. You know, we will see a lot of small things move, but big stuff is unlikely to move. Mm-hmm. Chelsea, what, what should we expect from the House now led by Democratic Speaker Nancy Pelosi? Yeah, well, I think you can expect them to make good on their 2016 um, Democratic platform promises, um, which highlight extreme positions on abortion. Um, Right out of the gate on January 2nd, you saw language in um, some of the first legislation repealing the Mexico City policy, which was one of President Trump's um, first pro-life. It was his first pro-life win, if you will, Mm -hmm. as a president. And um, so they came out of the gate swinging, repealing that. Um, It's definitely still in the works with where that's going to be in the Senate. Um, But I think they're definitely um, coming after as hard and fast as possible. Um, The Hyde Amendment, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, and just um, really highlighting their extreme um, positions on abortion um, and making that clear. So on that particular issue, we've got our work cut out for us to make the case uh, not just for a pro-life ethic, but also for the type of pluralism argument that we're going to have to be increasingly mm-hmm. uh, making to stand against taxpayer dollars, for mm-hmm. example, being yeah. used uh, to fund abortions. I was just going to say, I, I, th- I think that's certainly true, and we saw that, and, and that's going to be just ongoing conversation. I think you're also going to see from the House um, a lot of things trying to advance particular ideologies that 
pertains to healthcare. Uh, you're probably going to see some more criminal justice things. You're probably going to see some immigration things um, being done, and and those are going to add further complexity and further color to just how we seek to engage with the House's agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, there's yeah. going to be, I think, a lot of things that we will take issue with, and there's a lot of th- things that we are wanting to be monitors of and perhaps even engaging with. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just going to be a lot of complex activity around the table this year. All right, so jumping into the particular issues that we're going to be advocating for, our legislative agenda. Travis, do you want to give an introduction to what this document is? We put it up at the start of every year. It's up again now. Yeah, so this this document is kind of a comprehensive look of all the issues that we think we might have an opportunity to work on or that we're trying to drive into the conversation over the next year. So, you know, obviously, you know, we, I mean, if you look at it, it's, you know, it's a a 10-page document. So, you know, we're not working on all of these issues all right, the time. Right. We're, we're a small team. But, I mean, at, at certain points throughout uh, throughout the year, uh, we hope to be working on all or most of these issues and driving some of them into the conversation. So, you know, we've already kind of talked about the atmospherics of, of what we're dealing with. I mean, it's it's a, it's going to be a time of partisanship. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a year of gridlock. It's going to be a year of, of using issues to score political points rather than actually get policy wins. And so we, you know, we want to be realistic about what what we're going to be able to get done. But, you know, as we just talked about, I think there are some opportunities. You know, there are definitely some areas where we're going to have to play defense and we're going to have to uh, push back on on some of the things that that are going to be coming at us from the House. But, um, you know, we're, we're definitely going to have our work cut out for us this year. And the portfolio of issues that the ERLC engages on here in Washington, D.C. is formed both by Scripture, the Word of God, what does the Word of God have to say about some of these issues, uh, as well as our Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting resolutions process. So if you're curious, how does the ERLC decide of all the issues that are being debated and discussed in the public square and in Washington, how do we decide on what to engage? That's the way we do it. So the, uh, the categories of our advocacy work are sanctity of human life issues, religious liberty issues, family and marriage issues, justice issues, and finally, international issues. So Chelsea, I want to start with you. Uh, what are we going to be working on as it pertains to the sanctity of human life? Um, yeah, so um, we definitely do a lot on the um, issue of life. Um, next week in D.C. is the annual March for Life, and um, we are also hosting our Evangelicals for Life conference in D.C., and so that kind of is the big kickoff to our work and other people's work in this city. But like you mentioned, um, we come at this work from a biblical basis, from the first page of Scripture, we see that humans are created in God's image, and um, we believe that that um, includes the unborn from from conception. And so some of the big um, ticket items we were working on um, are going to be funding for abortion. Um, so one of the, the issues um, that's going to come up, I think, in the next couple weeks in the Senate is going to be the No Taxpayer Funding for Abortion Act. And so what that basically does is seeks to codify the Hyde Amendment. And um, the Hyde Amendment was passed right after Roe v. Wade um, by Congressman Henry Hyde. And what it basically does is says that no um, Medicaid dollars can go for funding um, for abortion. Mm -hmm. And it's been estimated that that one amendment, which is a rider on the amendment process every year, um, it is not codified into our 
legislation. It's it's done every single year, mm-hmm. um, but it's been estimated that that one um, amendment has saved approximately two million lives. Mm-hmm. And um, in I, I mentioned this earlier, but in the 2016 Democratic platform, um, they explicitly say that they um, are continue to oppose and seek to overturn federal and state laws and policies um, that impede a woman's access to abortion, including repealing uh, the Hyde Amendment. So mm. I think it's going to be a huge fight in the House um, and and then in turn um, asking the Senate um, to push back and to, mm-hmm. to remain um pro-life. And so the No Taxpayer Funding um, for Abortion Act um, seeks to codify that, but I I do think we have our work cut out for us in um, playing defense in the House and um, also raising this issue in the Senate. Um, So that's probably um, one of the the bigger ticket items we'll be working on in the next couple weeks and throughout this year. Um, But I also wanted to highlight another bill that kind of shows the extremity of this issue, um, and that's the Born Alive Bill. Um, okay. The longer title is the Born Alive um, Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Mm-hmm. And what that bill does is currently in law, if a baby is born from a failed abortion, um, doctors are not required to give that child the same level of medical care that a child that is born yeah. um basically a wanted child that is born would have. And so um, this bill kind of shows the extremity that abortion advocates go to demanding abortion, mm-hmm. um, abortion well, and, and, on demand, and abortion the human to, dignity mm-hmm, of the unborn. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that like, even, even just because that child is not wanted means that we should not try we shouldn't to care for it, care for it. Even, um, right? and, and I mean, haunting. children die in hospitals yeah. from botched abortions right. or failed abortions. And, right. um, those children are humans and they right. have, they should have the same rights to that medical care. So that's, that's a bill that's to good. highlight the extremity of, um, the position. Travis, coming to you, uh, within the, uh, portfolio section of religious liberty, what are we going to be working on this year? Yeah, highlight maybe two issues. So one is a bill called the Child Welfare Provider Inclusion Act. What this bill does is allows religious adoption and foster care agencies to operate in a manner that's consistent with their religious beliefs. Uh, This bill was included in a House spending bill last year, the House uh, Labor Age Appropriations Bill. It it obviously didn't become law, but we made significant progress there. So we'll, we're going to continue working on that issue. I mean, I, I think is, you know, this this will be a common theme with a lot of the issues we talk about. This, it's not a bipartisan issue right now. And so there's not a lot of chance that we're going to be able to get it through the Senate right. or through the House within the next couple of years. But we're going to continue to advocate for it, continue to make the case for it, yeah. continue to build support for it uh, throughout this year. You know, another issue I'd mention is support for what the Department of Health and Human Services has been doing on kind of the frontier of, of conscience protection right. and and protecting the the right the conscience rights of medical professionals who don't want to participate in abortion. So, I mean, what you know, kind of what both of these issues have in, in common is the idea of creating and allowing a society where people of different viewpoints can operate together. Even the Hyde Amendment is an example of that idea. Right. right. Um, and so, you know, we we have supported you know, the rights of medical professionals and to be able to 
carry out their profession in a manner that's consistent with their religious beliefs right. uh, for many years now. And we're grateful that HHS has, has stepped up. So we're, you know, we've supported those rules. We'll continue to defend them as they right. work their way through the courts. They've been challenged. Um, and that's another area that we're going to be working on. Um, you know, last, I'd say globally, you know, First Amendment Defense Act remains a priority of ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's another issue that's got some pretty tough sledding ahead of it with Democratic-controlled House. But uh, we're going to continue to make the case for it and build support for it. Within the category of family and marriage, the ERLC believes that marriage is indeed a gift from God and serves as the basic human social structure that provides for human flourishing. And most importantly, uh, we do believe that marriage between one man and one woman is uh, the God-ordained way in which we illustrate the relationship between Christ and his church. And so we're going to be working uh, in this coming year to continue to defend the integrity of families in all area uh, of policy, as well as upholding God's design for for marriage. Um, two issues that that I will highlight uh, for the conversation here from our legislative agenda uh, that relate specifically to marriage and family policy is adoption and foster care related policies. Uh, you'll notice that this is a bit of a theme of a lot of the work that we do, and, and so you'll see that reflected here in the legislative agenda as well. The RLC cares uh, deeply about foster care and adoption uh, really as part of our pro-life ethic and part of our belief in human dignity and in the family. Uh, we believe that children's issues are, are woven into a wide variety of, of policies. And so as Travis mentioned, the Child Welfare Provider Inclusion Act is, is part of that uh, as well, as well as exploring opportunities aimed at uh, promoting and supporting international adoption uh, as we continue to work with service providers and uh, our friends at the State Department. We'll be working on adoption and foster care-related policies this year. Uh, And then the second within this category that I'd like to highlight uh, is responding to the opioid crisis. Uh, Unfortunately, this is a tragedy that uh, has not gone away, uh, but one silver lining here is that in in this uh, really tumultuous age of sharp, sharp partisanship uh, on almost every front. In the last Congress, the opioid crisis saw a pretty significant bipartisan win uh, with the passage of the Support for Patients and Community Act. It was it was H.R. 6, last Congress. That bill uh, did a lot. ERLC engaged on that bill last Congress. Um, You can read more about it on our website, but essentially we'll be looking forward to in 2019 to continue to work with the administration and our friends at the Department of Health and Human Services on implementation of that act, uh, working with welfare providers, uh, the faith community, law enforcement individuals uh, as we continue to implement uh, that really important piece of legislation. Yeah, Jeff, I'm glad you highlighted those two issues in particular because the further upstream you can go um, in helping families, um, especially on the opioid crisis, there's been an uptick in uh, the past couple years of children entering into foster care because of parents being on opioids yeah, and, right. and overdosing and whatnot. And so um, I really appreciate that you highlighted those two together because you're continuing to go upstream to keep families together and, and wrap around and help keep those families together so that a child never has to enter into to foster care. Right. And part of our holistic approach to caring for children, to vulnerable children, is caring for their families and well. So I appreciated that you highlighted this. That's right. And it's everything, you know, when we, when we talk about marriage and family policy, we are thinking uh, – 
both about uh, the basic institution of marriage and family, but also, like you said, uh, upstream and, and all the other issues that can affect our marriages and our and our families. So, Stephen, coming to you, uh, justice issues. What within within that category of issues? And this is a pretty broad one. Are we going to be focusing on in in 2019? Yeah, our justice category really gives us a good opportunity to reflect what is, and is often forgotten, a communicable attribute of God, right? God is just. Uh, even Romans, you know, has that very familiar phrase, he's both just and the justifier. Mm-hmm. It's a, yeah. it's an attribute that we uh, are, are able to share in and reflect um, in terms of our engagement on issues that really address um, those who have been marginalized, uh, issues of inequity. Um, it's our chance to uh, not just be obedient to Micah six eight, but of course it is. But it's our chance to really demonstrate that the the priority of the gospel that we seek to live out um, has implications that touch on a variety of issues that really speak to human flourishing, human dignity, uh, and making sure that uh, that people are treated uh, in a way that affirms those things. And so, yeah, it was a really good and interesting year for justice this past Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a bipartisan criminal justice reform bill passed. We'll Huge. probably uh, touch on that in another episode. It was entitled the First Step Act, and true to its name, uh, it was just that, a first step. It addressed both front-end and back-end reforms, thankfully. So you had some sentencing wins. You had some internal prison reform wins. I imagine there's going to be some ongoing legislation now that would constitute the second and third and the fourth step. Uh, And so we're going to be monitoring uh, what— individuals want to do to progress this issue. Um, there's a bill that I'm, I'm looking at called the Renew Act, uh, seeking to, to address the expungibility of first-time drug offenses for individuals under 25 years old. Um, I imagine that if that's dropped again, it's going to get a lot of, of headlines. But there are a number of, of issues in the criminal justice space that I think legislators are going to want to put forward uh, to constitute those second and third steps. And we're going to continue to be engaged on that. A lot that can be done. The First Step Act was certainly bipartisan, passed mm-hmm. overwhelmingly, but it was a compromise. And there, right. there are a lot of things that didn't get addressed in this in this bill, though we, we supported it all the way and yeah. did a lot of work on it. You know, I have to say, I mean, I, I still really am stunned that that Congress was able to pass that bill. I mean, I think, you know, we we did a lot of work on that bill over the, certainly the last two years, but even before that, you know, I, I really do hope that that Congress is able to look at this issue and say, you know, we, we were able to do this last year mm-hmm. in 2018. Surely we can take a second and a third and a fourth step this year. Yeah, political commentator Van Jones called it a Christmas miracle. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think that's certainly true. Yeah, that's right. Um you know, there, there is uh, a couple of things on the human trafficking front that that we were engaged in last year that that's going to be an ongoing engagement for us. Um, the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act was passed, um, known as, it was a kind of SESTA-FOSTA is what it was known as. These are abbreviations of bills that address online sex trafficking. We were engaged in advocacy on this front, happy to see those things passed. So the reauthorization of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act was passed. That's over 400 million dollars over four years to human trafficking. There are a number of bills that are still, that were dropped in the last Congress uh, that I expect to be dropped again this Congress that particularly deal with victims of human trafficking that we're probably going to be backing. So human trafficking is going to be another area that we're going to be uh, engaged in. Another one that I'll mention um, is payday lending. Um, this is an, in, an issue that we engage in with a coalition of, of folks um, 
to address predatory payday lending. Um, they, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention has a resolution on predatory payday lending. You can go and check that out. But it's really us trying to advocate at the federal level for an interest rate cap on payday lending because we, many people in pews, perhaps many people listening, mm-hmm. have have seen the effects of an industry that is really uh, and truly predatory right. on families, on the, f- the financial status of families, and, and see how devastating that impact can be. Right. So payday lending will be an issue that we're going to seek to uh, really try to champion this year. Again, a lot of complexity, political complexities, um, but because of the dynamics of the House in particular, I'm interested to see what the Financial Services Committee is going to be doing on this front. I'm, I'm expecting some movement here. There's been some articles out already saying that Congresswoman Maxine Waters is going to be addressing this issue, and so it's going to be in the conversation. Mm-hmm. How we engage and where we engage is going to be yet to be determined, but this is an issue that, that we're passionate about, and it falls under the justice heading. The last one I'll mention that we'll be monitoring is the DACA issue. Right. This is an ongoing thing that's in litigation. We're um, hearing murmurs that it could potentially be tied up in right and and reopening our government and the reopening of our of our government <laughs> of our dear government. Um, but what we'll see there. Um, but this is something that we have long said has been it's Congress's job to to provide this remedy. And so right. we can talk about the constitutionality of DACA and its implementation in 2012 all day. But ultimately, Congress needs to to address this issue. That's right. And you can actually see for those who are listening our evangelical leader statement on principles on Dreamers right. that we dropped last year that that looks at the at the principal level of why we engage this issue and the view that we take. So we'll be following that as well. All right. And Lauren, let's talk about international issues. The ERLC is not only engaged here in the United States, but we're engaged in issues globally. That's something woven into the very fabric of what it means to cooperate with the Southern Baptist Convention. The International Mission Board sends missionaries all throughout uh, the globe, and we're engaged as well, uh, representing not just Southern Baptists, but also uh, the global church. So what are we going to be focusing on uh, as it pertains to international issues in 2019? While most of ERLC's policy work is domestic, you know, running through these themes, our team just mentioned human dignity, justice, marriage and family, and religious liberty, we have a robust international portfolio too. And like our domestic work, our work and advocacy abroad runs through these exact themes as well. Our team focuses most of all on religious liberty and international religious liberty because that is where we have the most expertise. So we're regularly monitoring religious freedom cases across the globe. But this year and last year, we've had a particular focus on the Middle East as well as Asia. One of our big victories last year was playing a role in the passing of H.R. 390, the Iraq and Syria Genocide Emergency Relief and Accountability Act. This was sponsored by New Jersey Congressman Chris Smith. This now law actually directs the State Department and USAID to support minority groups in Iraq and Syria who were victims of genocide and also directs them to investigate instances of genocide and other crimes against humanity. You know, this is an important step forward in protecting these victims of genocide. This not only includes Christians, but Shia Muslims and other religious minorities in both of these countries. Two of the main ways the ERLC advocates internationally is, one, through congressional advocacy like we did to help pass H.R. 390. You know, the other part of what we do, though, is mobilizing the international community through a variety of mechanisms to apply pressure to countries that have violated the religious freedom of other people. Last year, the ERLC mobilized various non-governmental or NGO organizations, both here in D.C. and internationally, to work for religious freedom in Malaysia. 
And this year, we are continuing to work with a similar broad multi-faith coalition to pursue greater religious freedom, but this time in North Korea and China. You know, it really is, it's so undeniable through through news stories and personal accounts and just what we're hearing on the Hill, yeah. that these violations of religious freedom in both of these countries are egregious and they're sad. In North Korea, we're working to urge the North Korean government to cease all restrictions on the right to freedom of opinion and expression and urge the international community to prioritize the opposition of these blatant religious freedom violations carried out by the DPRK or the Democratic People's Republic of China. This is not the only example of the restrictions this government places on its people, but these violations are serious enough that it warrants intense international pressure to alleviate the persecution of these people in Korea. And in China, we're committed to working with a host of other NGOs to direct both U.S. and international pressure towards alleviating the persecution of the Chinese people. You know, there's Christians as well as other religious minorities. And these these violations are are blatant as well. And you know, we're in North Korea, we might not see a lot of these news stories all of the time because of the the hindrances to to free speech and opinion um, in news media and journalists. In China, we see a lot of those on the front page every single day of burning Bibles, burning crosses, requiring churches to put up pictures of Chinese officials. And all of these ways, these people are oppressed. And so we are committed to working for their freedom. Mm-hmm. In these countries and others, you know, especially those in the Middle East and South Asia where we're focusing this year, we're also committed to working to repeal blasphemy and apostasy laws you know, to ensure that all people have the right to worship freely without fear of persecution or penalization. You know, in these countries and others, especially those in the Middle East and South Asia, we've seen many instances this year of violations of religious freedom through blasphemy and apostasy laws. And so in addition to our work in China and North Korea, our policy team is committed to working to repeal these laws, specifically to ensure that all people have the right to worship freely without fear of persecution or penalization. And so this coming year in 2019, we're focused on China, North Korea, and religious freedom initiatives abroad, and we're going to continue to work directly at the United Nations and their office in Geneva mm-hmm. to ensure that all of these people are protected and that their dignity is recognized. As you can tell, we are going to be working on a lot of issues uh, in, in 2019, but we recognize that Washington, D.C. is a city that remains deeply divided along partisan lines. Uh, but as we've talked about throughout this episode, this past year in 2018, there were a few glimmers of bipartisanship on a number of issues, whether that be uh, like we talked about uh, with criminal justice reform or curbing online sex trafficking. And we're going to continue to foster cooperation and, and find ways to decrease the partisanship and the tension uh, between between parties while, while working on engaging our issues, advocating uh, for the issues and policies that Southern Baptists have told us that they care about uh, as we continue to develop relationships and ultimately be a light for the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus Christ here in this capital city and, as Lauren mentioned, throughout the world with our engagement on behalf of our brothers and sisters 
But ultimately, we know that God has his own agenda, and our objective with this agenda, as well as with all of our work here at the ERLC, is to align ourselves with the ways that God is already working, and for us here at the Leland House, the way God is moving in Washington, D.C., to the benefit of the U.S. and the world as a whole. So we just would ask that as you listen to this, that you would join us in prayer and in action as we seek together to be used by God for his purposes this upcoming year in 2019. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. Thanks to our production team, Gary Lancaster, Jason Thacker, and Conrad Close for publishing this episode online. Resources from this conversation are available at ERLC.com along with additional podcasts, videos, and articles to equip you and your church.